Hey everybody, welcome back to the Everyday Hope Podcast. Yes, I said podcast, not Beachcast. I know, it was fun while it lasted. Hey, big shout out to our neighbors, Bob and Joanne. I want you to know we're praying for you guys and hope you're well. Also a shout out to Elma and Dylan and many blessings on you guys. All right, I have to tell you that I'm really loving Revelation. When you set aside some of the mystical interpretation we all grew up with and take a very simple view of the text, this book has a lot to say about enduring difficult times and the assurance we have in Jesus. This is by no means the final word on Revelation, but I really hope all of this will help us deal with the the tough times and manage the chaos in the world by deeply understanding that God is God and is never out of control. Now, we've been through a lot in these first seven chapters, and and as a review, I want to summarize and paraphrase what we've learned from Revelation thus far. So let me just read you a high-level summary of chapters 1 through 7. John was given a vision by the Lord, and he is sharing that vision with us. And that vision begins with a message to the church about what it means to be the church, what it looks like to live as the body of Christ every day. And that message culminates with a grand vision of the church's destiny, joyful, all-out worship of God around his throne. And in that vision, Jesus shows us the scroll of destiny, the view of human history for all time, which only he is worthy to open and reveal, fulfilling God's destiny for us, which he formed before he laid the foundation of the earth. And as he opens the seven seals on that scroll, we see the devastating cycle of human sin played out in the form of conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death. But those who have died for the gospel of Christ are gathered under the altar in heaven, clothed in righteousness and given rest. Then the long-awaited great and terrible day of the Lord is unleashed in all its fury. Now, don't panic. Don't be scared. God has sealed his people against that day, both those who have already gone to heaven and those who are waiting here on earth. We are his possessions, and nothing can alter what he has determined for us. So don't worry. Our past, present, and future have been assured in the Lamb. I hope this summary helps us understand what we've already seen and sets us up for what's to come. We're heading into some scary stuff and some confusing imagery, and we need firm footing to wade through these next chapters. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get right to the trivia of this chapter. Now, I use that word trivia to discuss the details of the visions that are described to us. I don't mean to trivialize these details by any means. I use the word trivia to separate out the discussion of the details of the vision from the message God has in store for us through these details. The the so what that we look for in each passage, which tells us how to live and think and act. Amen? So let's talk about the details of this chapter. And this week we have a few things to talk about. The seventh seal and the silence in heaven. The interlude between the seals and the trumpets in verses 2 to 5. The connection, if any, between the seals and the trumpets. And then the focus of the first four trumpets, which are described in chapter 8. All right, so let's get to it. Although the first six seals appear in chapter 6, the opening of the seventh seal doesn't show up until 8-1. Now, those who interpret the seals and the trumpets as literal and chronological judgments see this odd separation of the seventh seal in chapter 7 as an intermission or interlude. But we know not to put much stock in those chapter starts and stops, right? They were added very long time after Revelation was written. So a careful reading of the text, without minding the chapter starts and stops, shows us that chapter 7 answers the question posed at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand, right? Who can withstand the great and terrible day of the Lord? Well, chapter 7 shows us that all of God's people are sealed against that day. We are the answer to that question. 
but we're still anticipating the opening of the seventh seal. With me? So, the seventh seal is finally opened, and heaven holds its breath. Verse 1 says, There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. The scroll is now fully unsealed, and what's in it can be fulfilled. From heaven's point of view, it's already been done. But from our earthly point of view, there are some things yet to happen. And the awe of that fact is intensified when the seventh seal is opened, and heaven holds its breath. It's dramatic. And the awe that has inspired that pause ought to catch and hold our attention too. Something big is about to happen. But whatever that big thing is, the anticipation builds through the next section. In verses 2 to 5, the seven angels, and it's the seven angels, are given seven trumpets, the trumpets we expect to hear soon. And another angel offers, as an offering of incense, the prayers of all the saints which rise up before God. Then the censer holding the incense is cast down to the earth with storms and earthquakes reminiscent of the sixth seal. Then the seven angels prepare to blow their trumpets. Now, I have a question for you. Is this paragraph the conclusion to the seven seals, or is it the introduction to the seven trumpets? Well, I think verses two through five function really as both. This paragraph serves both to conclude the seals and open the trumpets and connects the two sections. Now, a lot of folks believe that the seventh seal actually is the seven trumpets. I like interpreting the close connection of these two passages, but I think it's a mistake to read the seals and the trumpets as two separate sets of judgments on the earth by God that occur in chronological order. It makes more sense to read the seven trumpets as describing in detail the events of the day of the Lord. In effect, we're seeing the sixth seal in more detail. This explains why chapter 7 seems to interrupt the action. It does interrupt it, but not by accident. Before God reveals the sixth seal in detail, He carefully explains to his people that they don't need to worry about what they're about to hear with me. So it looks like this. The seventh seal is open and heaven holds its breath in anticipation of the day of the Lord. Then the trumpets begin to blow and we see the judgments of God on the earth in great detail. Some celestial body falls from the sky. Mountains are tossed around and the sun is darkened and the stars fall. Just like in the sixth seal. Now, we know that this section closes the section on the seals and opens the section on the trumpets. And the literary interconnection emphasizes how close these sections are in meaning. We also know that many interpreters see the seven seals and seven trumpets as 14 literal judgments that will occur in chronological order at some future time after the rapture of the church, which we haven't seen yet, but before the second coming of Christ during a literal seven-year period of turmoil, which has not yet been introduced. However, other interpreters, myself included, disagree with that interpretation. I believe that the seven seals and seven trumpets overlap, covering the same basic period of time, an idea proposed by Richard Bauckham in his book, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. I believe that the trumpets describe the same period with a difference in detail and point of view. These judgments are focused specifically on the day of the Lord and the events immediately preceding it. I think about it this way. We see the cycle of human sin followed by the assurance of the salvation of the dead in Christ, followed by the awesome day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is so significant that there is silence in heaven as the trumpets begin to blow, and the judgments of God are released on the earth, which we see described in detail beginning in chapter 8. With me? Now, we finally come to the first four trumpets described in chapter 8. The first angel blows his trumpet in verse 7, which I want to read. It says, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled to the earth. 
And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. When the first trumpet sounds, the first judgment affects the vegetation of the earth. But this is not simply the random destruction of vegetation. What's in mind in this verse is food, the grass that feeds livestock and the trees that produce fruit. The words used in the context of this passage tell us that a third of the earth's ability to feed us was destroyed in this plague. Okay, let's go to verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. When the second trumpet blows, the second judgment affects the seas. A third of the sea is turned to blood, a third of the sea creatures die, a third of the ships destroyed. Basically, the judgments have moved from Earth's vegetation to the sea and sea life and the ability of human beings to use the sea. Oh, and by the way, has anybody seen a pattern yet? Has anybody noticed that both of these judgments have not had a total impact, but a one-third impact? We might see more about that later. All right, on to verses 10 to 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. So the third trumpet brings the third plague against a third of the sources of drinking water. You see a progression here? We live on things that grow, things that eat things that grow, things that live in the sea, and clean drinking water. Through these trumpet blasts, the earth's ability to support human life is being slashed by a third. And verse 12, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. So the fourth trumpet continues this theme of one-third destruction by affecting one-third of heavenly lights. There's a definite connection in these first four trumpets. The initial effects of the unleashing of the angels is the one-third devastation of a world. Clearly, these judgments were not intended to obliterate humankind, but to send a message to announce the judgment of the Lord in an effort to get the attention of an unbelieving world. Evidence for this appears at the end of chapter 9, when the fifth and sixth trumpets have blown. John tells us that the rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornications or their thefts. This information is irrelevant to us unless, to some degree, these judgments are intended to get the attention of the world. God tried to announce himself one more time to those who had rejected him. Those who loved their idols and sins clung to them despite the awesome power displayed by God. All right, so the first four trumpets. I think they seem to um, they fit a pattern, right? Each of them harms not all but a third of some facet of life and the earth's ability to support life. But there's another pattern here, and I wonder if anybody else noticed it. I want to read you a couple of passages from the Old Testament. These are all from Exodus, hint, hint. I want to start with Exodus 9, verses 23 to 25. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. There was hail with fire flashing continually in the midst of it, such heavy hail as had never fallen in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the open field throughout all the land of Egypt, both human and animal. The hail also struck down all the plants of the field and shattered every tree in the field. And then I want to read Exodus 7, verses 20 to 21. 
Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and of his officials, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the river. And all the water in the river was turned into blood, and the fish in the river died. The river stank so that the Egyptians could not drink its water, and there was blood throughout the whole land of Egypt. And then Exodus 10, 21-23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a dense darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. People could not see one another, and for three days they could not move from where they were. But all the Israelites had light where they lived. And then Exodus ten twelve to 14 Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt, so that the locusts may come upon it, and eat every plant in the land, and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When morning came, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came upon all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever shall be again. So, do you see the pattern? The first five trumpets all have parallels in the plagues of ancient Egypt, when God freed his people from bondage and led them to the promised land. Now, what conclusion am I trying to draw from this? Am I saying that God will revisit the exact plagues of Egypt on the earth during the last days? No. What I am saying is that there's an undeniable nod in this vision to something we know from the history of ancient Israel, and we can't ignore that nod. It's similar to the way God instituted blood sacrifice for the remission of sins for his people. They understood the cost of sin and the price for redemption. And when he sent Messiah to be the final blood sacrifice for all sin, The idea was the image that had become ingrained in the hearts and the minds of people would help them understand what was going on with the death of Jesus. I think something similar is going on here. God's people were in bondage. God displayed his awesome power to both the Egyptians and the Israelites through the ten plagues. He got everyone's attention. And these plagues preceded the exodus. There were plagues, and then the people were set free to leave Egypt and go to the land God had provided for them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this pattern is played out here in Revelation. There are plagues that nod toward the plagues of Egypt, which will precede a new exodus. God's people will leave the old earth in favor of the new earth. This is our promised land. Commentator G.K. Beale writes, The plagues are both a literary and theological model for the trumpets. If that's true, that means that we better understand the trumpets because we already understand the ancient plagues. We can more easily understand the exodus to come because we already understand the exodus that happened long ago. You with me? All right. So what? There's, There's a lot of stuff in this chapter, right? But what does it mean for us? Well, I think we learned three very important things from these first trumpets. First, we learned that God's power over creation is absolute And he reveals that to his people and to his enemies alike, just as he did with the plagues of ancient Egypt. Remember, Pharaoh started giving in after the second plague, but God hardened his heart. Plus, if you think about it, God could have shortened the whole process if he just started with plague number 10. I mean, that was a doozy. But he didn't want to shorten it. God wanted to display his power. And he brought 10 plagues so that both the Egyptians and the Israelites could witness how awesome is the Lord Most High. We must never, ever forget that God is God and his power over all things is absolute. Second, no matter how awesome the power of God or how obviously he demonstrates it, 
There is a sinful and unbelieving part of humanity that will refuse to turn from their idols and sins to the Lord. I believe God's judgment plagues are meant to display his power and capture the attention of those who have ignored him. Yet we know that so many people will not be convinced, even when God displays his power to them. And third, we've talked speculatively about the rapture, since the text does not discuss the great mass disappearing we see in movies and books. In fact, it doesn't seem to show up in Revelation at all. However, an exodus there will most certainly be. We will be taken out of this land of sin and bondage, and we will be brought to a land so far beyond our own imaginations that awe will be compounded with awe. I believe that God means us to know that our exodus is coming, and we have someplace wonderful prepared for us, just as Jesus promised. It's an awesome promise. And you know, I worry that people spend so much time trying to map out the chronology of the end times that they miss the wonderful promises God is making to to troubled people in this book. Look, our world is a mess, right? And I believe that every generation has said what we've been saying for most of 2020. You know, how could things get worse? We don't know what's coming, right? Will COVID get better or worse in 2021? Will the new government be better or worse in 2021? We just don't know. I have friends suffering from cancer. I have friends suffering the loss of loved ones. I have friends in financial difficulties. I have friends facing the end of their own lives. Right? How do we cope with the fear and uncertainty of these times? Well, I'll tell you how. God has promised that even in the most chaotic times, even in the midst of the destruction of the end times, He is in control, and we are sealed against that day. We can rest in that promise. No matter what's happening, He's got it. He's got us. And it really will all be okay. Amen? All right. I'm going to pray for you right now. And I want you to be safe and keep your eyes on what you're doing as your, as your hearts pray with me. Lord, these are tough times for all of us. And in the midst of all this mayhem and nonsense, you remind us in your great work of revelation that you have sealed us. That no matter what happens, you hold us in your hands. It doesn't mean we won't suffer, but it, it does mean that our destinies are assured and there's an exodus in our future. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. We praise you for making a place for us and ensuring that it's ours. Lord, we ask you that as we go through all of this mayhem, that you will guard us, protect us, guide us, and give us peace and healing and comfort. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, that does it for this episode. I'll see you all again next time when we tackle chapter 9. Peace. Peace.